five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent, he looks, reforms are being made for the nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept it with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear this reason. For we have found this man a plague, returned to Paul, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to remain the temple, but he seized it. By examining him yourself, you will find out from him about everything that is confused him. So the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Several chapters ago, you may remember that the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and these charges that are raised here now in you see specifically relate back to what already happened. Don't worry if you weren't here, I can tell you about two or three sentences, and the rest are wondering why didn't you do it that way last time. <laughs> Essentially, Paul faced two trials in Jerusalem. He was beaten, he was jailed, he was mocked, he was maligned, and all of it without cause. Now he's been sent off to a new city. And here in this new city, Paul will face the governor of the whole province, a guy named Felix. He does so before the eloquent attorney Tertullus, who was arguing the Jewish case against him. Essentially, the Jewish authorities had a religious problem with Paul. But because they were ultimately in charge, because they were an occupied nation, they were not allowed to execute Paul based on their religious charges against him. So they had to try to use Rome and create a political sense of turmoil in order to bring about his death. The goal of the trial was to use Rome as a means to end Paul's life. Now, if you know your Bible well, think of somebody else who faced a similar circumstance. It's Jesus. Jesus experienced the exact same thing. He was accused of a political crime, when in reality, the issue was that his life Religiously. The speech, uh, those first several verses of the chapter, are nauseating. They, they describe a man overflowing with vain flattery. Because history tells us that Felix was a brutal and immoral ruler. Josephus, the Jewish historian, has written extensively about him. He was known as someone who would crucify anyone. Who led an uprising against him. And that made this a particularly dangerous situation for Paul. Felix had been anything but generous to the Jews. And yet, Tertullius is here just buttering him up one side and down the other. And then laying out the charges against him that the verses 4 through 8 describe. Essentially, if you take those verses and try to say what's the bottom line of what he was accused of, it's this. The charge was that Paul disturbed the peace, that he upset society as an insurrection, and that he was a threat, therefore, to Rome. The Jewish leader wanted Paul to 
be seen as a mortal political enemy of Rome. Now, frankly, this is an incredibly brilliant tactic because it plays to Felix's basis emotion, fear. If Felix couldn't keep Paul under control, if there was some kind of uprising, then he must have been disposed. By accusing Paul of rioting and insurrection, connected with some backwoods illegal religion, Tullius held out for his life the very best possible case to get Paul executed. Now, what in the world does that mean for any of us? Beyond nodding our heads a little bit, what does that do for Monday morning? Well, church, the Bible is clear. A persecution is a normative Jesus himself warned his disciples that he would face, that they would face, and we would face, all kinds of suffering for our faith. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it happened to Jesus. We bear his name. It's going to happen to us. Now, for those of us in the room or online who are from the United States, the last couple of hundred years have been an aberration being considered the history of the rest of Christianity. Because there hasn't really been a substantial organized attack against Christianity. We've enjoyed immense religious freedom. Culturally speaking, I'm not referring to the events of the last week, or rather the events of the last 10, 12 years. That's clearly changing. Beloved, if you live for Christ and you don't Face locked up in the closet, then it is increasingly likely that you will be ostracized. And like all the charges raised against you will often not be true. See, none of those things listed that they accused Paul of hadn't actually done. He, he didn't love riot, he wasn't an insurrectionist, his faith was not heresy, and he made no attempt to cause problems. So every accusation was a twisting of truth. Christian, the same thing will happen to you. Maybe you've gotten by thus far without it, but it has become more and more normal. The primary fault line for accusations against believers today is anything related to the Bible's teachings on sex, gender, and the LGBT view of self-expression. And so, as a believer living your life in public, if you were to say to someone, it's dangerous and morally bankrupt to encourage your middle school to change genders. Or, if you were to discourage a friend from marrying someone of your same sex. Even if your motive is for people's flourishing. And if your demeanor in those conversations is gentle, humble, kind, and gracious, you will very likely be accused of being on the wrong side of history. And you'll be compared with those who supported slavery. Neither accusation is true, but that is the time in which we live. And we Christians haven't made this the issue of the day. But we must not be silent either when opportunities present themselves to share what's ultimately better. How do we prepare 
prepared for moments like that. Well, that's what this paragraph is about. It helps us to think ahead so that we don't get caught off guard, so that we can be prepared. You might consider memorizing a passage of scripture that would help you in a moment like that. It's a great one in Matthew chapter 5. It'll be here on the screen. I follow along with you. Jesus said this Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, God has not blessed us. He will continue to build his church. He will continue to save people. But we are facing a time in which there is an increasing opposition against faith. How will you stay true to your biblical convictions? Well, it's by thinking of passages like that, by dwelling on them ahead of time, in order that you would be prepared for what those opposition means. Now, the rest of the chapter this morning we'll be looking at will flesh out how Paul himself works this out in his own experience. And so as we study it, yes, we're looking at an ancient event, but its truth is ever alive and present and helpful for us as we try to be prepared for any persecution that we might face. So let's see what Paul did. We look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've made as you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find you disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against you. But this I confess <coughs> to you, that according to the way of Christianity was originally described. But according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both sides. Now, after several years, I came down with alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me terrified in the temple without any cause or cause. But some Jews from Asia, they thought they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when they stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am a child before you this day. Having a rather accurate knowledge, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide the case. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. As we try to think, brothers and sisters, about how do we be prepared to Stand for Christ when it's hard. 
We had a one-on-one conversation for a horrible class where in the boardroom of work. How do we stand for Christ when it's possible? Well, this passage gives us great help because it serves as a wonderful case study for the giving and receiving of the word of God. In Paul's case, the example is positive. He, he gave the word faithfully. But in Felix's case, the example is negative. He refused to receive the word. Both are very instructive for us. So let's spend the remaining time together thinking about those two things. How you can wisely get the word and why it's unwise to reject the word. First, let's consider that positive example. Paul. Paul's defense before Felix came in two parts. You probably noticed that. There is, on the one hand, a denial of the charges against him, and on the other hand, he did make a confession. First, let's think about that denial. If you look back over verses 11, 12, and 13, you'll see that Paul made a complete and total refutation of every charge brought against him. And not only that, the apostle goes out of his way to say, the accusers aren't even here. And the ones who are here have nothing to say. Sometimes believers misunderstand how God would want us to respond to persecution. Yes, there are things in the Bible that say if you're struck on the one cheek, off the other also. If you're Hope is taken from the give receiving, too. In our interpersonal interactions, notice, if someone's hostile to the gospel and they take advantage of you, then yes, we're to love that enemy, to pray for them, or to retain from any and all personal retaliation. That is what Jesus did. That is what we are called to do, irrespective of. But in Paul's case, and perhaps someday in your case, the accusation won't be informal. It won't be interpersonal. It'll be public. It will be legal. It may be at work or at school. But if there is an accusation against you that is simply not true, and it is not interpersonal in nature, and you have every right. And yet you must refuse the accusation. You see, the accusation against Paul was a, a, a crime that if he had done it would be worthy of the death penalty. And yet it simply wasn't true. So it was appropriate for him to make a formal defense. But if you're formally accused about something that is not accurate, then it is right to give a respectful, honest defense. To do so without arrogance, to do so without wondering, to do so without a sense of superiority, but nonetheless in a defense. Now, Paul not only made a defense, though, he also offered an accusation, and a, a confession. Did you notice that? In verse 
14 and actually uses that word. But this I confess to you. His point is essentially this. I have done none of those things for a few minutes. But you can consider me guilty of one thing. I am guilty of worshiping God. I believe everything written in my Bible, and I have a hope in God. That, Felix, is why I'm lost. Christian, if you were in a similar situation, would you be able to say the same thing? As you consider the Bible in your lap, do you believe everything written in it? And do you have a hope in God? Those are important questions to consider. But that's not really the most accurate way of bringing this up. Because in reality, if you are in Christ, then the truth is, yes, you do have a hope. And yes, you do have the scriptures written on your heart. Because the Spirit has healed you, placed you into the life of Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ is in you. You are in Christ. Therefore, the same power that was accessible to Paul is yours. So a far more accurate way to try to encourage is to say, what are you doing? With what is always true Pray that that question would not only come to our minds privately, but that this week we spend time in small groups, in disciple relationships, our homes, with our roommates, discussing that issue. If you consider your own life and you recognize, believer, that you have lately been ashamed of God and you embarrassed by your sin, then the solution to that is not to feel guilty. Well, the gospel says that you should repent in return, and that the God whom you've been ashamed of will be very happy to forgive you, that he is merciful and just, and that he will empower you for the life of serving. But what about the non-Christian? Maybe there's someone in the room who has yet to trust Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're watching this online later, and you're not so sure about Jesus. So what do you think? Well, there is an issue of eternal importance in this paragraph that is designed by Paul when he spoke it, and therefore it's designed by God, as we see it today, to encourage you, if you don't know Christ, to consider what is on the line, what's at stake. That word is resurrection. You'll see it there if you look at verse 15. Paul called it his hope. His hope. Now that, that's frankly rather confusing to us because when we use the word hope, it usually means something like, uh, what are you going to do today? And the response is, well, I, I hope to take a nap, to watch some football, and to eat a lot. What are you saying when you say, I hope? You're, you're saying, well, that's what I want, but I'm not sure if that's what really will happen. I might have a long list of honeydews that I get. So, 
Hope means maybe, maybe not in our own vernacular. But that's not what it means in the scripture. It's not what the word actually means. To have hope is to have certainty. It's to have confidence. It's to have a settled conviction about something that's still to come in the future. And so it's a it's a promise that you've seized, but you're still waiting for its fulfillment. That's what the word hope means in the Bible. Now, in one sense, it's rather understandable that we find ourselves not thinking much about what is still a long ways off. And we find ourselves very much in that way today. We, we are a society infatuated with media. And again, I think in one sense that's very understandable. I mean, there's been just a few things happening this year, right? I mean, most of us would say this has been the most unusual year we have ever experienced. And so it's understandable that we would find ourselves preoccupied with today. But our constant preoccupation is today distracted from what's to come. The joy of the immediate drowns out the hopes of And if we allow ourselves to be constantly consumed with now, then we will neglect what is ultimate. And that is to our spiritual peril. Think of it this way. Imagine your life span is the equivalent of climbing to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Anybody in the room ever done that? The last time there were several. So, uh, they're probably still higher because it is 1,665 steps from the bottom of the Eiffel Tower to the very top. The That's a long way. So, imagine that that is the span of your life. And so, with each passing step, the days are numbered. When you reach the top, one particular perspective would say that's the end. You've made it your 665 steps, or your 60 years, whatever it is in the competition. Now here's the thing. The truth is, the end is not the end. You see, in the worldview of the Bible, every person who has ever lived will live forever. That's what the word resurrection is referring to. As C.S. Lewis said, we have never lost eyes with a mere mortal. Everyone is an eternal being. You will go on and on and on and on and on. Now, is that hard to get your head around? Yes. But the scriptures are unbelievably clear about this. I think it would be better to look at our lives not as climbing to life to help, but as an endless stairway. I looked up how many steps it is to the moon. It is saying It is two billion steps. So just imagine that your lifespan is way beyond that. 
And yet, by God's grace, he resisted that very natural tendency to become hardened by hard circumstances. And instead, he continued to make witness to Christ. Beloved, when we face suffering, that's no time to stop living on mission to Jesus. In fact, it might be in suffering that you have your greatest opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. It certainly was that way for Paul. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, with very clear mixed motives, partly we're interested in what you have to say, partly we hope if we keep you long enough, you'll get a bribe, you'll get a pile of money that we'll give, and then I'll let you go. Well, as they brought Paul near to converse with him, what did they talk about? Well, verse 25 told us. So they talked about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. That seems like a rather odd list of topics, doesn't it? But here's the question. The, the Roman historian Tacitus called it Felix, described him this way. Quote, a master of cruelty and lust, who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of pleasure. End quote. So, Festus in his public, Felix in his public life, was anything but just. He was tired. But what about his private life? Well, that was true privately too. His wife, when, when Felix was with his second wife, this we learned from a man named Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. So neither Tacitus or Josephus are Christians. They're just telling us from the perspective of secular history what happened. Josephus describes how Felix came to be in this relationship with his wife. He was with his second wife, and apparently someone named Drusilla came for a visit. He was unusually gorgeous and caught his eye. And so being a man who lacked self-control, he wooed her, he promised her happiness, they became lovers, and he convinced her to be her husband. Now add to that the fact that she was 16 years older. And it's pretty clear in Felix's private life, he was unjust. While Felix and Jerusalem might have had an interesting academic discussion with Paul, and that's why they kept going back to him besides money, Paul had a different focus. See, the truth that there will be a resurrection for all people has profound moral implications. And Paul brought those to bear on the couple in specific. Think back to those three ideas. Righteousness, self-control, judgment. Felix was not righteous. No one would have claimed he was. And being an unrighteous person, Felix had no self-control. He was a man driven by passions he couldn't stop. In other words, he's like us. And because he was unrighteous, and because he had no self-control, then when Jesus 
turn the God and say, the muscle of self-control. You find yourself waking up one day and realize that thing I remember stopped doing. I don't remember the last time you just thought about it. It's a miracle. Christ in you. Unfortunately, from Felix, we learned how not to receive the word of God. Text tells us two haunting details. Tells us that as Felix heard this gospel, he was alarmed. That's a soft translation. It means that he was terrified. And yet, in his fear of coming judgment, he pushed all away. The text also tells us that he knew the way. So his problem wasn't that he hadn't heard what's true, that he didn't see it, that he didn't come to terms with the fact that that's what was true. He refused the offer of grace and remained in rejection. For some other reason. Friends, as he refused as well, As far as we know, Felix never received good news. His opportunity to pass. Again, he was patient. I'm encouraging today to believe in Pass from a life of unrighteousness, lack of self control, into a life of love, joy, peace. Not by conforming yourself to the outward trappings of the world, but by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. You're not quite there yet. You'd love to talk to him. You probably not to twist your arm, but to walk with you as long as you're comfortable. You consider the same decision. And we need one of a thousand times. A whole bunch of us have come to Christ. But what about for the Christian? Well, friends, church, all you that enjoy a fresh wind of joy, hope, confidence, you come. This morning you've been reminded that you have no fear of passing the judgment. None. God has given you. The guarantee that he is for you. Because Christ already took your guilt, you need not fear any power again. Because Christ was condemned, you won't be. Because Christ bore the wrath of God, you won't. Amen? This is a miracle of comfort. And not only that, but within you is the power of God. As you look out this week beyond what is immediate to what is eternal, as you read the scriptures, as you pray, as you talk to God personally, as you walk through each day looking not at what is the latest thing my friend tells me, 
that's true for all time. Cultivating eternal perspective, gazing upon Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that the clearest spiritual one is there. That your life will continue to look like this. Because the power of the gospel isn't simply to remove our Now, this is not an easy message to hear. It assaults our sense that we are in charge. We ask you this morning that in each of our lives we would do the miracle that only you can do of applying this word to our individual circumstances. Pray for the non Christian in the room. Thank you for them. So humble that. Who are here who are still very Pray that they would press in even further, read the Bible carefully, talk with a friend they came on, reach out to one of the elders. That they wouldn't let the pressure of the immediate blind them from the importance of this time. I pray, Lord, for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who already know you. Who've already been given your righteousness, but they have lost them freedom that you have given them. And that God, in, in an age where self control is not valued, where we are indoctrinated that we ought to pursue whatever we can get, you cultivate something harder. A life in which the fruit of the Spirit is coming to bear, such that we are becoming more and more and more and more more and more like Christ. Yes, we work this out not only in our individual lives, but in our shared life as a church, as we seek to be a people who live for you, who share the gospel in everyday life, and who help each other.